Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Well, happy summer travel season, and for all of us, let's hope it's a real busy one. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. With Memorial Day behind us, we've all adjusted our mindset to summer, which with the exception of last year, is always a busy time for the airline business. It's also a busy time for airline news, and we're gonna to get to some interesting discussion right off the bat. Chris, if you'll take the baton and get us started. Thanks, Ben, and hello to our listeners. Uh, as Ben said, lots going on in aviation this past week, including the Ryanair incident over Belarus and the downgrading of Mexican aviation safety by the FAA. We're going to cover these issues and more uh, with a lot more expertise than Ben or I can usually do on our own. We're pleased to welcome to the podcast Ken Quinn as our guest. Ken is a highly regarded legal expert in aviation circles, having served as general counsel at the FAA, chair of the American Bar Association's Aviation and Space Forum, the editor of its publication, The Air and Space Lawyer, for 13 years, and general counsel and secretary to the Flight Safety Foundation for the past 20 years. He has represented scores of airlines, airports, manufacturers, and other aviation interests in his private law practice. And he's not only a smart guy, but he's a nice guy too. So Ken, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to uh, be here, Ben. Uh, long time no see, and it's great to be here. Well, Ken, we really appreciate you being here. But let's start with sort of what we think is the biggest global aviation story of the week, which is the hijacking of Ryanair Flight 4978 by the Belarus government. First, is it fair to call it a hijacking? Can you give us a high-level overview of what international laws and agreements were violated by the Belarus action? Sure, but I mean, they're trying to sort all of that out now, and a lot of smart uh, lawyers and investigators are looking into the incidents, and you've you got to interview the flight crew, you've got to look at the, uh, you know, the flight data recorder and the air traffic uh, tapes to see uh, some level of the unsafe condition that might have occurred on board for the crew and the passengers, but it's an outrageous incident. Uh, one would like to see some clarity in ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, moving fast. But under the uh, Chicago Convention in 1944, you generally have uh, safety and uh, as paramount interest of all states you do have sovereignty over your airspace, so you can uh, intercept a flight, but you've got to do so in a way that's very safe uh, for the passengers and crew. Uh, you also have a fundamental freedom of air. The first freedom, actually, is the right to transit over another country. Uh, usually that's embodied in international air services transit agreement. Unfortunately here, Belarus is not a signatory to that. So then we've got to look at things that were really put into place after the spate of hijackings in the late 60s and early 70s. And one of those uh, relevant to this situation is the Montreal Convention. And there, it was really for someone who was going to be either threatening a hijacking on board an airplane or actually just bearing down and taking over control of the aircraft from inside. But it has been ratified by Belarus. And it says a person commits an offense if they unlawfully and intentionally communicate information which he knows to be false. 
thereby endangering the safety of an aircraft in flight. So again, it, it's really more for those on board, but it doesn't rule out what we seem to have here, which is a first instance of a state-sponsored hijacking and doing so in a way that communicated false information to the flight crew, scrambling a MiG-29, uh, making it divert to Minsk instead of Vilnius, which was actually closer, and thereby perhaps endangering the safety of the passengers and flight crews. So we, we need to sort through all of these laws, conventions, treaties, agreements to see the respective rights and obligations. But it's pretty outrageous, unlawful interference with the safety of civil aviation. And that's what the Montreal Convention was designed to combat. But is it self-enforcing? No. And that's another problem. So, Ken, um, you yourself have said that the investigation is just starting, and I think that's an accurate assessment. But um, what's your thought on the initial response by other governments as far as sanctions? Too much? Too slow? Too fast? Not enough? I thought the European Union was uh, right on target and was f incredibly fast in both condemning the action as outrageous and a state-sponsored hijacking as characterized by Ryanair, and at the same time imposing uh, sanctions, sanctions on the Belarus carrier to fly in EU airspace and to avoid any flights to and through Belarus. The reaction of the International Civil Aviation Organization, which of course uh, Russia is a key member, China is a key member, the United States and all the, so many of uh, the 193 states, was I would say rather subdued and somewhat disappointing. They said that they were uh, seriously concerned uh, to which I said, really? Uh, that's all you got? <laughs> I think uh, it's a little more than seriously concerned. It should have been strongly condemned. But they have now uh, had an emergency meeting of the council, and the council has agreed to take an investigation up. And uh, we'll see where that goes. First report out in the end, I believe, of this month. Uh, the United States similarly condemning. Uh, so I think what we've seen is, uh, is fairly good by the European Union, good on them little subdued by the international organization that's in, in you know, has the charter to really enforce these things. But it's still uh, an ongoing matter. Russia, of course, the, their failure to condemn and then welcoming Lutashenko to Moscow and putting your arms around him, I thought was uh, rather outrageous. And China, I believe, did not vote to, uh, to move forward with the investigation. So we'll see where they go. Well, Ken, other than Russia, like you mentioned, do you know of any other forces or interests that might come to Belarus's defense, at least as far as easing sanctions on aviation? Well, I think a country to watch is China. China uh, has the representative currently as the Secretary General of the International Civil Aviation Organization, and they are also uh, quite friendly uh, with uh, working with the Russians in many areas, including uh, trying to push back some of the NATO control countries and NATO airspace decisions. And they have an interest, I think, in, in combating Western and, and U.S. countries who are trying to enforce the laws and make sure that things like unlawful interference in civil aviation uh, really has some teeth in it. We need those countries and the U.N. itself, the Security Council, I think, to get involved in some of this to impose sanctions that will change the behavior, if not the regime, in Belarus. So there's been this somewhat tepid response, if I can kind of characterize your characterization, um, you know, the EU acting fast, but the rest of the world kind of observing. Do you think Russia risks any kind of sanctions itself if they stick their neck out too far in defending Belarus, or are they going to be able just to kind of 
walk around like they have been uh, doing the last decade or so. Yeah, it was a disappointing response by Russia, but characteristic, I think, of what we've seen with them uh, in the Ukraine. Obviously, uh, at the Flight Safety Foundation, we're very disappointed uh, with the lack of cooperation for an independent investigation into the Malaysia uh, Airlines Flight 17 that got shot down uh, by what appears to be either Russian or Ukrainian troops friendly to Russia using a Russia surface-to-air missile but they really stymied the Dutch uh, investigation and they seem to be impervious to international pressure to change some of their behavior from election interference uh, to now uh, another act of uh, unlawful interference in civil aviation. In fact, they, you know, Putin is saying, well, this is uh, just like the United States intercepting the uh, Bolivian state aircraft carrying Morales, the president at the time, uh, to uh, intercept Snowden. But there, that was not a commercial flight. You needed particular approval to go through airspace for a state aircraft as opposed to a commercial flight. Commercial flights are different. Unfortunately, one of the problems here, too, is that, you know, we're harmed by harming the airspace, closing the airspace, which is a safe thing to do. You're harming all international carriers that now have to take, you know, a a more inefficient route to get to some of these places. And in some cases have to go through Russian airspace now. And Russia also, who are, if they're avoiding Belarus, are not permitting uh, folks to fly. They just recently approved Air France, KLM, and uh, Lufthansa, I believe, today. You've made reference a couple of times to the Flight Safety Foundation, and and I did as well in the introduction. I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with what the foundation does and who its members are. It might be useful just to cover that off real quick. Sure. It's the oldest and the only uh, independent, nonprofit, international organization dedicated solely to flight safety. So its members include virtually all of the major carriers of the world and aerospace companies and labor unions and uh, individuals that are dedicated solely to flight safety. So we have a great uh, board of governors and we've been around since 1947 and we kind of encourage states to put politics aside and share uh, not just accident information, but uh, free flow of data precursors to accidents which is, I think, one of the reasons why the aviation system, commercial aviation, is so incredibly uh, safe today. But we're also involved in general aviation. We're involved in even far-flung things uh, like in Melbourne, Australia, with uh, mineral mining operators, offshore operators, that have been traditionally a more risky flights out there, and we're helping them with uh, audits and increasing the level of safety. So it's it's a great organization. I'm proud to be part of it. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Ken Quinn, but first a reminder that TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most of the rooms you buy and only pay for what was consumed, which means enhanced operations and true savings for your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com, TA Connections, a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Okay, Ken, let's switch a little closer to home in the FAA's actions to downgrade the safety rating for Mexican aviation. This isn't the first time this has happened. I think the last time was in 2010. With U.S.-Canadian travel market still closed, U.S.-Mexico air travel has been booming. What was going on behind the scenes before this announcement by the FAA? Well, there's always behind the scenes lots of dialogue that goes on in these uh, international aviation safety assessments that the FAA has been doing for decades now. And, and it's important to note here, too, that it's not of the 
of the airlines from Mexico, principally uh, Aeromexico and Boraris, but it's the it's really the National Civil Aviation Authority's compliance, not with FAA rules or regs, but rather with international uh, safety standards, principally Annex 6 and others in the Chicago Convention. But they did a, an assessment in October 2020. They did another assessment in February 2021. And they're really only now coming out with uh, their downgrade from Category 1 to Category 2. And so that tells you that there's been months-long dialogue between the U.S. and Mexico to try to fix a number of these non-compliances. I'm told they did make considerable progress on fixing uh, a large number of them, but they still have a ways to go. Last time, I think it took them about four months to go back up from uh, Category 2 to Category one after it became public. Tremendous pressure on the country, on their carriers uh, to really address these problems, many of which are, are staffing expertise, training, and uh, really resource-oriented things, trying to get the oversight people to know what they're over- overseeing, trying to make sure that they're doing their jobs and they're being vigilant, which is particularly important now as we stand up aviation. What's your sense as far as U.S. interests? You know, how could either U.S. carriers or other aviation interests suffer because of this downgrade, Ken? I don't think there's a lot there. I mean, the Mexican carriers, U.S. Mexico is more like one-fourth of the flights. So it's already dominated by U.S. carriers. As Ben mentioned, U.S. Mexican travel was one of the first to stand up after the pandemic. So flights to Cancun, to Cabo, to Puerto Vallarta to Mexico City are really huge, uh, 151,900 flights set for this summer. You do have the Delta Aeromexico and the Frontier Valaris code share. The codes are going to have to be taken off. Those are going to need to be rebooked. But I believe uh, Delta, for example, has already said they're going to honor frequent flyer miles on Aeromexico. So I think, if anything, it's going to be a boon for the U.S. carriers who are going to pick up probably a larger proportion than they already do of the booming U.S.-Mexico traffic. The problem for the Mexican carriers, they can't increase flights. Uh, They can't increase frequencies. They can't increase the gauge, the size, the aircraft. And that's what U.S. carriers are doing right now. They're adding aircraft, they're increasing frequencies, they're increasing routes. And these Mexican carriers aren't going to be able to do that, not during Category 2 rating. I think with Valaris being such a low fare carrier, I wonder if fares to Mexico are going to get a little higher as U.S. capacity comes in there at higher cost than Valaris is. They tend to discipline some of the pricing. So I agree with you. It's going to be a boon for U.S. airlines since people are still going to want to go to Mexico, but it might be at a little higher fare, I think. Oh, yeah. I think, Ben, that's exactly right. I mean, and it's basic economics. If you have a, a period of increased demand, but a cap on supply, particularly on one end of it, and particularly on the most cost-sensitive, the leisure traffic carrier that's going to be the usually the low-fare carrier, then you'll see fares go up. You mentioned that last time it took them about four months. Certainly looking from the outside in from where I am, it's hard to know how far away from category one they are, right? How many of these ICAO standards they're off on. Do you have any sense as to whether this is likely to be that quick if they collaborate and respond really well? Or do you think these might take longer just because there are more issues here? Well, uh, as we know, and I think you've covered in some of your past 
podcasts, labor market is very short uh, right now. It's not just a phenomenon in the United States. Uh, people have gone on unemployment. They're, they get, uh, they're on federal rolls or they've moved out of the aviation industry when the whole system shut down due to the pandemic and they found other jobs and other careers. And so it's a, it's a difficult thing uh, to know exactly what the shortcomings were. The, the governments try to keep these things close to the vest. We have a lot of folks, though, that remain in Category 2 that are from fairly large countries, Pakistan to, uh, to Malaysia, Curacao, Thailand, Ghana, Venezuela, Bangladesh. You know, they've been parked there for a while, and let's hope that's not the case here with Mexico. I doubt it. I think they're going to come back quickly. It's a great country. It's a great partner of the United States. They have two phenomenal airlines that I think are also key partners of the U.S. carriers who are going to lend them their help and support. And the FAA quite often will, as they will here, uh, devote considerable of their own resources to help the Mexican Civil Aviation Authority uh, come up to compliance with international standards. Ken, we were talking offline about your involvement and some other issues, including uh, global efforts to incorporate digital health certificates and other tools to uh, speed up international air travel. Um, obviously, lots of controversy still here in the U.S. related to all this, but what can you tell us about those efforts and who's doing some interesting things? Well, everyone's doing some interesting things, I think, right now. Uh, that's one of the problems. Uh, they're not necessarily proceeding in tandem. You have the European Union very aggressively going with what they originally called their green uh, health certificate. Uh, I believe that's now going to be called more a COVID uh, certificate. You have the International Civil Aviation Organization just undertaking an enormous effort. And I commend both the governments and Interpol and a lot of law enforcement agencies to come up with a digital version of the health certificate that you can incorporate into your personal phone, your smartphone, so that it will give you, uh, whether you've been vaccinated, confirmation of that. Perhaps in the second stage, we're looking at adding any prior test information or whether you've got antibodies, you've had COVID-19 in the past or its variants. And then you have the World Health Organization, which moves a little more slowly as an international organization, but also is very mindful that not only dealing with the pandemic, but having evidence that you've, you've basically now been able to get through it safely and in a healthy way, they have their own app. And so they're trying to integrate these efforts, harmonize them. One is going to try to be rolled out in Europe uh, at the end of June, probably more likely in July. Uh, ICAO hopes to come up with something shortly thereafter. The EU and ICAO are in a very close dialogue. And the United States is moving uh, very quickly, although it was funny. The United States has been great in getting the vaccine out. And we have a higher percentage of adults with uh, vaccines here. But they haven't been particularly good, and the states haven't been great in a digital version of proof of vaccination. And that's a real problem. I've got a card in my wallet that says I've been vaccinated twice, but it kind of looks like a a library card from the 1960s. We've got to be careful here. You've got to be able to really verify the identification of the person and prevent fraud so that we actually have verification of vaccination data, which is critical to ensuring the safety and health of people, not just in aviation, but around the world. Finally, Ken, 
Over the last couple of months, we've seen what seems to be a pretty big increase in disruptive customer actions on board airplanes that have come with some eye-popping fines by the FAA. What do you think is going on there? Do you think the FAA fines have been right? And how do you see that playing out? Well, I have some friends in aviation that think the FAA has not moved aggressively enough and have been not fining people enough. I'd say that the FAA has been pretty much on the mark. I know Administrator Steve Dixon has really been out there in video form at every airport trying to remind people against uh, unruly behavior and the fact that it will lead to harsh sanctions. But we still have now, I think, over 2,500 incidents. And then I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, I think people are fed up with wearing masks. Now they're vaccinated. Now they can go to a restaurant or go to a theater or the grocery store without wearing a mask in most states. And they don't understand why they've got to wear them in airports and, and on an aircraft. And so they're likely to take them off and they're likely to fight. But we've got to, we've got to be patient with this and we've got to see it through. But uh, some people want to put uh, unruly passengers in jail. I think that's a little too far. <laughs> but we, we really need to uh, be respectful uh, of those who are most vulnerable uh, or have not been vaccinated yet for whatever reason until we can get through this pandemic uh, safely in a healthy way. Well, there's probably a growing uh, legal practice to defend uh, unruly passengers. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's not where I make my money. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, uh, this has been great. It's always enjoyable to talk to you and learn from you. And uh, we appreciate your sharing a few minutes uh, with us and with our listeners. Hey, Ben, Chris, I commend you for the podcast. And I really enjoyed t- being just a small part of it. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Ken. We'll be right back with more about the Breeze Airways inaugural flight. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. We're back with more Airlines Confidential, which is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Chris, that was a great discussion. You were spot on when you said Ken was both smart and a good guy. He's absolutely both of those. Thanks for reaching out to him. This underscores the power of relationships. I think Ken was one of the first people I met when I joined the aviation business at the former Air Transport Association in 1990. Uh, We've worked together on, on a number of issues, not always on the same side, but he's a smart guy and I'm glad he's shared some of that with us today. Great that people, even with differences, can work together, isn't it? Absolutely. And while we're on the topic of smart guys and sharing insight, we thought it would be fun to welcome back our friend and roving Airlines Confidential reporter, Chris Sloan, who took a ride this past week on the inaugural flight for Breeze Airways from Tampa to Charleston. Chris, welcome back. Tell us about your day with the Breeze team. It was pretty cool. I mean, really, one month to the day after launching... uh Avello, and I think I'm finally pronouncing that right. Uh, we uh, we got to take a ride on uh, Febreze and or Breeze, and um, and it was uh, you know it was quite a uh, quite a coming out party. You know we've been hearing about it for three years, so to finally see it come to fruition 
was uh, pretty exciting. And um, it really took on uh, a significant event. I mean, the amount of national press and aviation geeks and enthusiasts and uh, it was and the, and the Tampa authorities. I mean, it was a it was a big event. And, um, you know, the technology company with wings, uh, which that has been such a big part of it. You know, I wasn't sure how apparent that was or successful on the first day because, you know, I tried to check in on the super app and uh, me and many others were not able to until late in the evening. Finally got on and the app is, you know, very nice, very seamless. It actually queries you for your social media credentials and, uh, and you know, your LinkedIn accounts and, um, you know, pretty neat. Um, and also you can actually book within the app. It runs on a Navitair, but um, the one thing it couldn't really do was check us in. So then the, the, the morning of, I, which I found really interesting, was uh, we showed up at the counter and I think I was the only one to actually check a bag, but it was like a 20 Breeze ground staff were all huddled around three computers, you know, checking us in. And that struck me because the whole notion was there was going to be, to keep costs down, there was going to be very, very few people, um, A, at the gate or B, at the counters. And um, there were no kiosks. Uh, there were no, by the way, their next door neighbor, Ben, is Spirit, who kind of were looking on with a little bit of a raised eyebrow as these guys were all huddling to uh, check in the first passengers. But I thought that was interesting is that there was a lot of ground staff. Um, they were all third party. Uh, the station manager actually told me, he's like, yeah, this is my sixth day here. You know, and then um, we proceeded over to this big launch party, which really was thrown by the Tampa Bay authorities, the Tampa Bay Air Aviation uh, people, because they said it was the very first time an airline had ever launched there. And uh, Nealman got up, and really the point he made the most was uh, this really isn't just about fares. It's less about fares. It's more about convenience. It's double the speed at half the price. So by bypassing hubs, um, you know, he made the point again of 95% of their um, routes uh, would be uh, unique, um, though the ironic uh, part, of, I think, which went unmentioned is the very first route, which was uh, of the day, which was uh, Tampa to Charleston is actually operated by Silver Air as well. Now, when we got on, on board the airplane, it was, um, you know, I, we call this Breeze version 1.0 or Breeze beta tester or Breeze light, because obviously with the, uh, you know, as, as your listeners know, with the arrival of the A320 or A220s, um, there'll be a completely different product and completely different uh, markets they're serving. Uh, so this kind of felt like a Velo, but this was kind of almost felt like a pre-opening, if you will. You know, it was, it was nice being on an LCC that the seats were, uh, you know, reclined. It was, uh, they were, they were, you know, there was absolutely no branding. It felt fairly generic. I mean, they were clearly... Uh, the second-hand leased aircraft that came from Azul, uh, you know, no no seat back embedded monitors, no seat power, but they weren't slimline seats either. I mean, everything was it was very well padded, very comfortable, um, but you know, not much to say about that. I mean, fairly bare bones, and they've been very clear that you know a lot of those amenities, like the nicest front first class cabin, the Wi-Fi, the IFE, you know, all that uh, will you know come later. Um, right now, obviously, this was a work in progress. And um, we pushed back on time. There was a phalanx, an armada of airport ground crew snapping photos and pictures. And and then we got the, uh, you know, the, the, the heavens opened up with a water cannon salute. And, you know, and then we were off on our way. And it was about 55 minutes, which uh, that seems to be, you know, two hours is about the longest stage length they're, they're saying for the, the 195. So it was a really quick flight you know the catering pretty standard i mean simple they they made a joke like uh, they've uh, you know they're the world's nicest airline so what would be the perfect uh, snack would be free kind bars uh and then we had a, we had a, a free bottle of water and um 
you know, again, Nealman got up and made a toast. Uh, his wife, Ava, was flying with him. And they, you know, he said to her, he said to the crew, he's like, he, you know, he, he, He's, he's not he doesn't seem like a guy who really prepares his remarks or anything. He just kind of got up there and said, hey, we're really glad you're here. I, I told my wife uh, that, you know, whenever there's inaugural, there's going to be a lot of airline geeks and enthusiasts. And I think half this plane is. So he gave a big shout out to all the uh, the geeks and enthusiasts. And they couldn't do anything. Every, every milestone had a cheer. The first all call, the first door closed, the first PA, the first, you know, safety briefing. Every, everything was applause. So it was a really fun, upbeat, uh, very, very quick event. You know, and then we, uh, you know, and then we, you know, we came into Charleston and, uh, you know, I, we felt like we were like heroes coming home from like, uh, from like some amazing mission, because as we emerged from the gate, there was more press and everybody applauding us like we were some sort of heroes. I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an exciting adventure to watch. They're going to ramp up to uh, the first 13 aircraft, 39 destinations over 16 cities by the end of July. And as far as the proposition, the world's nicest airline, I mean, yes, everybody was very nice, very friendly. The flight attendants, the ones we spoke to, were all hired by the, uh, you know, the university, U- Utah Valley University program, though they had not started school yet. Um, but and as I, I know how you guys feel about that, uh, or Chris in particular, and I think your, you know, some of your your opinions of that have been validated because they clearly are hiring. Uh, cabin crew and flight attendants in a more traditional uh, manner as well. But uh, the three that were on board for us were all very, very friendly uh, UVU students. So, you know, it was just a, you know, it was a fun event. um, And, uh, you know, you felt it had like a lot of, uh, a lot of possibility energy. What I will say is it didn't feel, it's not that like, if you just take it on its own merits, it's not, it, it didn't feel overly slick or overly, you know, my God for the hype. It felt, it felt like a bit of a, a pre-launch, and I think that's what we're going to see. Is they said the the A two twenties, they believe they're going to have three by the end of the year, the first coming October, and that's I think where you're going to really start to see um, this product uh, and this evolve and this airline uh, quote you know take off. How's that? <laughs> well, it's interesting. They will have a uh, they will already have a bit of a reputation by the time that two twenty comes, right? And so it'll be a question as to how good that reputation can be based on the Embraer airplane. Chris, you float on the Avalo or inaugural and the Breeze inaugural. If you were asked by Vegas to give odds on which airline is more likely to do well and survive, who would you pick right now knowing what you know? You know, I think Breeze probably has a bit of a nod only from the standpoint, I hate to say it, but I mean, you just never... Uh, bet against David Nealman. And the way this model sounds to me is like they picked up these aircraft on a power of the hour basis and they're operating everything so cheap and their costs are so low. And I think the A220 proposition, that has a little more meat on the bones, some long-term legs. So I probably would go Breeze. Um, I'm still not completely buy into the, you know, the Avalo model, especially because everybody seems to have already taken on the idea that they're a threat. Like I think Frontier... And Alaska sitting on them at Burbank the way they've done and then American up in capacity in Phoenix is going to make things that's already kind of a sign that uh, things are going to be made difficult for them. That's my take. Chris, there's been lots of talk about their flight attendants, obviously, but any sense of where they're uh, recruiting flight crew from? Um, I got the sense that uh, they were recruiting from traditional airlines as well. Some people that took voluntary buyouts or some that were furloughed or some that had left the industry, which I found interesting because that kind of went against almost the the JetBlue notion of they were looking for people, you know, not necessarily experienced in the airline industry. 
I realize this might be a stretch, but do you think that David Nealman felt pressure because of the Avalos start to get started sooner than maybe they really wanted? If the check-in on the phones wasn't really working, it almost seems like this was almost a rushed kind of a start. The real product's going to be the 220 but they certainly don't want to miss the bulk of the summer and maybe sort of seeing Avalo get out there and knowing that Avalo's coming to the East Coast. Do you think they felt pressured to start sooner than they were ready? It's a good question. I think you talked about that last week. I, I don't know. I see it a little differently because they announced it as, you know, Moxie back in 2018. And uh, by the way, I will say this. I find it interesting. That the uh, the code is still MX and that's how it, that's what it's going to remain. And I feel they wanted to start earlier and they were, they initially were going to go into charters and then they, you know, opportunistically, uh, you know, found these unbeloved, you know, high cost, but low purchase, low lease cost um, e-jets. And I thought that they, the, the idea of, um, if anything, I mean, their first flight was supposed to be the end of April and actually before um, Avalo. Um so, there, but they they had some issues, uh, you know, with that final certificate. So, you know, I actually think that they they wanted to start earlier and they were ready, but they kind of always admitted it was going to be a kind of like a. It's almost like two airlines, you know. There definitely is a difference between Breeze One and Breeze Two, and I and I'm and I'm with you on that point. Is have they started so early and created a brand perception that's going to be different than what they ultimately wind up with? Though when we asked them, they said the real difference if you're flying the quote breeze light the the e-jet the only real difference between what you're seeing now versus what you will see is they're going to add an ife and a streaming ife system and they'll be actually buy on board catering but what we're kind of seeing for that version is kind of what we're going to get on a go move forward basis but my sense is you know get up in the air quickly start building a passenger base and build some momentum through the summer so you can uh, build upon that as you continue to build out your brand. So we, we know there's strong demand for air travel this summer, so why not take advantage of it? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's in both cases, that's completely right. This airline is, um, you know, sun and sand. So Chris, how did you get back from Charleston? Oh, I flew American. <laughs> <laughs> And how was that? You know, and that was and that was in first class. That was the night. That was nicest. <laughs> so that's funny. And straight back to Miami, I mean. Well, at the Tampa airport people need to check their history too, because the first commercial flight was from St. Petersburg to Tampa. Uh, so they were the site of uh, an inaugural, just on the other receiving end uh, years, years ago. So. You're right. For extra geek cred, what was? Do you remember the name of the airline? I should know this because. When I was at Air Transport Association, we celebrated like the one billionth airline passenger or something. But uh, no, you tell us. It was uh, Benoist. There we go. I have a snarky question for you, Chris. When David Nealman said that 95% of their routes have no nonstop competitor, do you think he was considering silver at all? <laughs> you know, those two old men in the Muppet show that would sit up in the audience and like diss the, diss the act? <laughs> Yeah. I want to kind of raise my hand and say, you know, that, that pink plane behind you that's going to Charleston? What about that one? <laughs> well, Chris, it's always good to talk to you. You get around more than Waldo, so hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Let us know when you do your next great inaugural or other fun aviation geek thing. All righty. Thanks, guys, for uh, having me on, and I, uh, 
I love the show. Except for the except for the episodes that I'm on. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> More Airlines Confidential coming up. And a reminder that Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. So it's time for our listener questions and a reminder that Airlines Confidential welcomes your feedback, comments, and questions. Our phone number where you can leave a voicemail is 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Christopher in Kansas City. Not sure if that's Missouri or Kansas, but uh, Christopher, we're glad you're listening. Hello, Ben and Chris. Love the show. With demand for long-haul travel expected to remain depressed for quite some time, would there be any benefits if Global Airlines operated old-fashioned Fifth Freedom flights? Back in the day, some airlines operated Fifth Freedom flights primarily because wide-body aircraft lack sufficient range. As aircraft range capabilities have greatly improved over the years, global airlines have ended their fifth freedom flights in favor of more desirable nonstop flights. For example, British Airways operated a 747 on flight 009 that flew Heathrow, Abu Dhabi, Bangkok, Sydney, and then ended in Melbourne. If BA were to begin flying this route again, it, it could serve all of the cities using fewer aircraft than it would have flown to each of them individually with nonstop flights, except Sydney and Melbourne, of course. This would allow BA to better manage available seat capacity without flying too many empty seats. There would also be an added benefit of selling tickets to local passengers on each individual leg. This practice would obviously be temporary and airlines could gradually remove stops in favor of nonstop flights as demand recovers. What are your thoughts? Well, Chris, I thought this was a real interesting question. So thank you, Christopher, for the question. I think there's a couple of complicating things here. First, fifth freedom flying isn't the choice of the airline. It's the choice of the country or countries involved that would allow that. And some freedoms that used to exist no longer exist. And some freedoms that may exist, the airline might still have to go through a process to get the right to use that fifth freedom authority. You can't just say, I want to fly from Frankfurt to India on fifth freedom authority if you're Delta without having the right from the U.S. to do that and the right from Germany and the right from India to do that, for example. And so there's that complication. So some of the things that used to be done maybe couldn't be redone today. The other thing is that far and away the most expensive part of any flight is the takeoff and the second is the landing. With the takeoff, the plane's really heavy. You use a lot of fuel to get all that weight up in the air. You also are in the most dense air that the airplane's in, so you got the most drag. On landing, you... As soon as you touch down, you pay a big fee to the airport for landing and a fee to park at the um, 
at the gate and such. When the plane is at cruise, it's actually the most efficient it is. It has the least amount of drag on it. The engines are burning the least amount of fuel and so on. So that hopping up and down, which does have the advantage of picking up more people as you go, makes the trip incredibly expensive. I'll give you a personal example on this. When I first joined Taka Airlines back in 1997, they flew a 767 from El Salvador to Guatemala, then to Washington, D.C., then from Washington, D.C. on to New York. And those two short legs, the El Salvador to Guatemala and Washington to New York, represented only about 5% or 8% of the total ASMs of the trip, but they represented 35% of the costs of the trip. So we scrapped that, got the 320 and flew everything nonstop and it everything just made more money that way. So I think there's an economic reason that this would be challenging to do and might just be better un- to wait until the demand returns. And then there's also a regulatory issue that may make it impossible. Chris, did I miss something there? No, I think that's a, a good summary, Ben. And I think people also either don't remember or just didn't know that a lot of these fifth freedom rights were the product of a bygone era. I mean, there was a time when there were no airlines out of Abu Dhabi and that part of the world wanted other carriers to serve the markets just to bring air service. Or after World War II, the fifth freedom rights out of Germany and Japan were a product of kind of post-war expansion and post-war economic development and also basically the U.S. having a little more leverage over those parts of the world after the war. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think, like you said, going back to fifth freedom is something that's practical because a lot of those rights don't exist anymore. Great ad, Chris. Well, Chris, this next question is from Chelsea in Pittsburgh. Chris and Ben, I enjoy the show and hope you'll take my question. The pandemic seems about over as it relates to air travel. No U.S. airline downsized to the point of endangering their existing hubs. Do you think all the marginal hubs like Memphis, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh have been eliminated? If a hub survived COVID, do you think they're safe for the foreseeable future? Mm, um, That's a great question, Uh, Chelsea. Thank you for... Sending it in, I'm not going to go on the record predicting any hub that might disappear going forward. But I mean, you know, I think what you saw and Ben, keep me honest here, clearly airlines focused on protecting their assets and a hub is an expensive asset to build and to maintain and to move or to rebuild or to dismantle. And so as you saw business travel evaporating, that impacted hub activity, but no one was ready to pull the plug on a hub. You know, for the time being, I think we're kind of right-sized on hubs. I mean, some tough decisions were made over the last 15, 20 years, and it wasn't fun, but it was necessary. So, you know, there's lots of speculation on does Delta need that Salt Lake hub? Um, I think they've been real creative in how to make that work. You know, certainly they're building a hub in Seattle to be a gateway to Asia and also put in a lot of domestic travel to feed that hub. But, you know, I think generally hubs are kind of in the right place right now. We'll just have to see how the industry progresses. But Ben, you probably are closer to this than I am. 
No, that's that's a good comments, Chris. The thing that I would add, Chelsea, is that the closure of some of the hubs you mentioned were not only because they were marginal, to use your term, really what that meant is they relied heavily on connections and not that much local demand. But what really made those hubs go away was consolidation in the industry. So think about Memphis, for example. That was a Northwest Airlines hub back from when they merged with Republic long ago. (laughs) And in the Northwest network, Memphis was quite unique. Their other hubs were Detroit and Minneapolis. And if they got rid of Memphis, they would have lost close to 100% of the revenue that they carried through Memphis because it was the only thing they had in that geography. And yet, they couldn't shed all the costs by getting rid of Memphis because of, you know, gate lease rentals. And even if they shrunk the labor pool, they would have kept the most senior, more expensive people. Now, when they merged with Delta, that all changed because now they could keep most of the revenue that Memphis earned since it was mostly connect by carrying it all over Atlanta. So it was easy for a merged Delta Northwest to close Memphis because they didn't need it anymore. But when it was only with Northwest, it was it was kind of needed in their system. So consolidation had a long a lot to do with the closure of some of these hubs because they became duplicative when multiple airline when two airlines got together. So I agree with Chris. I think we're kind of right size now unless there were more consolidation down the road and that would create again some maybe duplication in the hubs. But I think we're kind of good where we are. I agree with Chris. And I think, Ben, thanks for your additions on on my quick response. But I I think what you've also seen over the last 10 or 15 years is airlines looking at Boston and LaGuardia and LA and uh, those kinds of markets that were really O&D markets for business travel. They're, They're kind of more like hubs now. They've either found ways to operate more connecting traffic or they've acquired more gates and more slots in a way that they're they're kind of hubs so it's not just a, a big O&D business market. Finer Wine is next and don't forget that Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. We've also got a special offer for Airlines Confidential listeners. Visit clearme.com and you'll receive two months free, including for up to three of your family members. Just use promo code AIRLINESCONFIDENTIAL, which is valid through July 1st, 2021. That's clearme.com, promo code AIRLINESCONFIDENTIAL. Chris, our finer wine is from Mark of Lexington, Tennessee. I flew Southwest during COVID almost every week, and they were nice to make changes I needed, and I was understanding on the flights that were canceled. Now they have full flights and are less accommodating when they change flights and want me to spend $350 to change my flight. Chris, is this a finer wine? Mm, You know the answer to this one, Ben. Sorry, Mark. This is a wine this isn't a change fee. It's what we in the business or for those who used to be in the business. It's what we call an ad collect. Uh, you changed your plans and the fare for your itinerary has gone up. So unfortunately, a bargain ticket doesn't entitle you to a, rep- a replacement flight on that same itinerary for the same price. 
even on Southwest. So the 350 is an, an increase in the fare for where you want to go and when you want to go. I've got a fun story on this one, Mark and Chris. Back a while ago, when Spirit in first introduced a calendar on its website, which are popular on many sites now. So you say you want to fly on a specific day, but the website actually shows you prices you know, a couple of weeks around when you'd go in case it might be cheaper if you left it a little bit earlier or stayed a little bit longer or something. We thought introducing that would be a great feature for customers to help them save money. What we found is that that was true, but we also saw a big increase of complaints where people said, you know, I booked this ticket, but I realized after the fact I booked the wrong day. I really wanted to book this day when, in fact, the reason they didn't book the right day is because it was more expensive and they got upset when we wouldn't offer it at the same price. (laughs) (laughs) So I know what you're going through, Mark, and I know it looks like that they were mean to you, but it really was because it was a different flight and a different time. The bastards. Yeah. That's, that's right. Well, Chris, my shout out this week isn't to a person. It's to a bat. And the bat I'm talking about, of course, is the one that was found in business class on an Air India flight from India to Newark. And I just want to give the shout out to that bat because that bat was able to do something that people have tried all the time to do, but haven't figured out how do you get a free seat in business class? (laughs) And the bat figured it out. I love that one. So um, my shout out is to the Worcester, Massachusetts airport that is finally getting its mojo back. Uh, This uh, little airport has uh, some personal history with me, but uh, the airport's now run by Massport and they had lost all of their commercial service during the pandemic as Delta, American and JetBlue had pulled out. Uh, JetBlue announced this past week that they're going to return with flights to JFK and Fort Lauderdale starting in August. So good for Worcester and uh, let's hope there's blue skies ahead. And with that, it's time to land this baby. It's a wrap for this week's Airlines Confidential. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.